Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, this is Alan Jetty. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I want to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. I'm delighted today to welcome our guest, Dr. Patricia Kluding. She's with the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Today we're going to be talking about a perspective article she and her colleagues published entitled Physical Training and Activity in People with Diabetic Peripheral Neuropathy, a Paradigm Shift. Patty, welcome. Thank you, Alan. I'm really happy to be part of this podcast. I want to start by saying how much I enjoyed reading your perspective. This is not an area that I follow closely in my own work, and so it was really a a very nice uh, update on the work that's being done in this area. And I thought maybe my first question would be, listeners might be interested in hearing about the history that led to uh, this perspective, which has been published in PTJ. Sure. It started with a poster that I was had accepted at the CSM in 2014 on some pilot data that we had with exercise and people with diabetic neuropathy. And I've had plenty of posters that, you know, have didn't necessarily go anywhere. But in this particular instance, I had visitors to my poster whose work I had been following, people I recognized and knew well in the field, like Michael Muller and Dave Senecor, Robin Marcus. I met some people that visited the poster, like Sonia Barris and Mary Hastings. And everybody I talked to in this group were so enthusiastic and so excited about our findings. And there aren't a lot of physical therapists really working in this field. And so it felt like we had... This, suddenly uh, this cohort of people who were interested in these questions. And on the plane ride home from CSM, I thought, um, you know, wouldn't it be great to do a, an educational session at the next CSM? And so we put that in, and that was accepted. And we had, oh, I don't know, several hundred people come to that educational session. And there was clearly an interest in understanding what the activity recommendations were for this population, even though it's not, again, an area that a lot of physical therapists have studied. And so we just felt very enthusiastic, and we turned that educational session basically into the framework for this article, and we're so happy to have it published and have this information kind of available to people. Well, it's a great story. As you say, I I did not know this wasn't a group who had been working together for a long time, so you really put the group together for the perspective coming out of the 2015 CSM conference. Right. Well, like I said, some of us have worked together, but others were kind of new to the group, but we each had our own different perspective from our own work, and it just fell into place very nicely. Well, as you point out, both in your title and in in your brief history, you are sharing a a different uh, paradigm in thinking in this area. So let's get right into it. One of the things that struck me, Patty, in, in reading the perspective is the terms that you and your colleagues are using. You're talking about exercise and physical training and physical activity. And I'm curious if you would share with the listeners your thoughts about whether or not you see those as synonyms or you distinguish among those concepts. You know, we had a lot of discussion about those terms, especially as it related to the title. We came up with a whole bunch of different ways to frame the title for this. And basically, you know, kind of a working 
I don't think they're quite synonymous. And I feel like in my perspective or my opinion, exercise refers to, you know, different activities that you might do to increase your physical fitness specifically, whether it's resistance exercise, aerobic exercise, flexibility exercise. It's referring to a specific type of physical activity, whereas physical activity, I think, is more general, including exercise, but also daily activity and also includes kind of the construct of sedentary behavior that you might have versus just walking around or standing behavior. And then physical training is, again, is fairly synonymous uh, with exercise, but implies the idea that people need guidance or supervision in order to do exercise systematically, that they do some type of a training regimen or training program. But in the field, I think there's lack of clarity about those terms. And so it can get confusing whether people are treating them as synonymous or, or distinct. I think that, you know, the more information that we are, we're getting now about the influence of sedentary behavior is independent of the actual physical exercise, requires us to be more clear with our terminology. I appreciate the distinctions that you're drawing because I do think they make sense. And so that leads me to the, the heart of your paradigm shift. And if, if I'm capturing it correctly, you're advocating that the maintenance and or increased in weight-bearing activities should be promoted. And the question I have is, are you talking about maintenance and weight-bearing physical activity or exercise or physical training? Because to me, they are different, and I'm curious how far you're pushing this paradigm in terms of the need for supervision. So much of this is unknown. I think that we're pushing that envelope while kind of monitoring and watching carefully. And I think that what we're understanding from some early literature that's kind of built up to this is that being consistent with physical activity during the day is a really important piece in being protective for ulcers. It's when you have a wide variability. And I, I go back to one of the early thought-provoking papers on this topic was a case study published by Mike Muller and colleagues in, gosh, I think it was 2005, about an individual who had a recurrence of a foot ulcer. The case was really described, the original foot ulcer, the treatment, that was healing well, they were back to their activity level, but then they went to a county fair one day and walked, you know, three times the normal amount of steps that they had walked previously. And that one day caused a recurrence of their foot ulcer. And so it's just kind of was very thought-provoking about activity is important, but it's not just number of steps. It's, it's a gradual increase in activity with monitoring and also making sure that there's good education about the variability in physical activity and understanding that, you know, more activity is better, but within moderation and with, with monitoring. And I'm not quite sure if I've answered your question. You have. You okay. have. Uh, <laughs> and there is real nuance here is what I mm -hmm. hear you saying. And your point about the variability in activity is, I think, something that's probably frequently overlooked. Do, do you think the the recommendation and the amount of supervision should vary based on the severity of a person's diabetic peripheral neuropathy? I do think it should vary, and I think that the severity of neuropathy is one factor that may cause people to need more supervision. For example, you know, we regularly, once a week, when we have people in our exercise programs, we'll, we'll take off their socks and shoes and look at their feet. And if they have really severe neuropathy, we will do it even more often so that we're providing that extra level of supervision 
when you're talking about exercise and you're talking about actually increasing activity level, you know, some people can do that safely without a lot of supervision. They're able to do that more independently, whereas we have, you know, a lot of experience with people who need help with understanding how to prevent hypoglycemic episodes after exercise or how to, you know, monitor their blood pressure and heart rate so that they stay in a safe zone. So it's not just about the neuropathy, but it's about all the multiple complications of diabetes that often require more supervision and intervention from a health team professional, physical therapist, as opposed to just thinking about the neuropathy by itself. So it is nuanced, and it's, it is difficult to make kind of general statements about, about level of supervision needed. The other thing I really liked about the perspective is that you also emphasize the danger of inactivity for individuals with diabetes and diabetic peripheral neuropathy. I think this is something that's frequently overlooked, and I was pleased to see that as part of the paradigm. Yeah, that's a really good point, and that's not necessarily part of any of the guidelines for activity. It's a point that maybe needs to have more clarity and needs to be raised up because it's not just you know, how can you be active safely, but it's what happens if you're not active and what, you know, path that that would take for the complications. There's risk on both sides is exactly. what I hear you saying. Exactly. The other thing that struck me and that I thought would be good to talk about is in your piece, you talk about exercise or physical activity should be multi-component. That includes aerobic resistance as well as balance. Is there evidence to support that, or is that based on clinical experience? Well, of course, you know, we would like more evidence. I will say that there's more, stronger evidence for balance interventions at this point in, in people with diabetic peripheral neuropathy. And in our, our paper in Table 1, you can see that a lot of the randomized controlled trials that we cite really focused on, they may, they, some of them had multi-component interventions, but, but the focus was on balance training. And then I would say second level of evidence is really on the aerobic component. And then lastly is evidence for resistance training. Again, it's anecdotally, clinically, you know, and we think that this is going to be helpful to these patients. We certainly know from the literature on people with diabetes in general that it's helpful, but, but I think there's still a really open question about the specific benefit of different types of exercises for people with the complication of peripheral neuropathy. And it's likely that a multi-component intervention is best. It makes sense that the aerobic training, the resistance training, the balance training would all contribute to improved function globally, but is the evidence is just isn't available to really make those strong recommendations yet. So the evidence is not as strong in all three areas. Correct, correct. I was also struck by near the end of your perspective, you note that uh, you recommend physician clearance when exercises intensity is going to be greater than brisk walking. And I wasn't surprised to see that. I think you see that in many areas. But a question that I wanted to ask is, do you think that the physician is the person most qualified to gauge the intensity of exercise being safe as well as therapeutic? And why not the physical therapist instead of the physician? Now that you mention this, that statement about the physician clearance is included in our appendix about which kind of summarize the pre-exercise considerations for this population. But in, in the text of the article, in the assessment piece, I think it's specifically under talking about cardiovascular system assessment. 
it's really when people have specific cardiovascular disease risk factors that that physician uh, evaluation is, is recommended. In some cases, they may need a graded maximum exercise test or stress test to clear them for moderate to vigorous level of physical activity. But now that you mention this, I'm a little worried that people might interpret that broadly because I think aside from, you know, the cardiovascular risk factors that might be present in this patient, in this population, certainly the other system assessments that go into determining level of risk as well as the appropriate level of exercise intensity, I think that physical therapists are definitely the best people to make that determination. And I speak often to physician groups, whether it's endocrinologists or neurologists or family medicine, in the context of this work. And I hear consistently from the providers that they don't know how to evaluate risk for exercise aside from specific, you know, their areas of expertise related to, for example, cardiovascular function. And, and they don't know how to advise patients. And, you know, in a, the short visit that they have with a the physician, they need to review medications. They need to review all the different, you know, parts of their health care. Recommending exercise is often an afterthought. And if it's recommended, it's typically a very general statement of you should exercise more or, you know, you should get 10,000 steps or, you know, something very generic and very general. So I frequently recommend to these physician groups that they rely on their physical therapist team members as to provide consulting services to their patients and, and related to exercise, whether it's just a single visit to, to evaluate risk and then uh, make a recommendation for an exercise program, or whether it's a recurring visit because it's somebody who needs ongoing supervision you know, because of pain or because of the neuropathy or because of other issues. And, you know, I'm hoping that with the guideline of this perspective and, you know, the other information that's out there with this population, the physical therapists feel perhaps, you know, that they have the knowledge that they need to make those recommendations. Well, I appreciate the clarification. It's very helpful. You know, as an expert in this area, might you talk a little bit about what you see as some of the major research questions that need to be addressed going forward in this arena? Yeah, I think, you know, as far as some of the areas that we've already identified that lack evidence, specifically the combination, whether the combination of different types of exercise is most appropriate or whether there's specific components that need to be targeted to this population is an open question, as I mentioned. Another question is related to the sustainability of exercise. And, you know, most of the studies that have been done evaluate people before and after an intervention. Sometimes there's a follow-up visit, but that's not typical, and there's really no awareness of the types of exercise or the types of education or the types of information that can help people make a permanent behavior change to their lifestyle, and, and that's really what's needed. And so we just don't know the best way to help people um, overcome the barriers to exercise and how to wean them from the supervision that they might get as part of a supervised exercise program in a research study or in a clinic. So those are some really important translational questions that need to be answered to the clinic. And then on the other side, on the, the basic science translation, is understanding really how exercise affects the nerves in these, these people with neuropathy. And is it a more of a systemic effect that exercise is just generally good for the body? Or is there specific evidence for, it seems like there's potential for exercise to have a specific targeted effect on the nerve fibers themselves. And that's really exciting to me. And I'm, I'm really interested in understanding that further. So there is just a lot of questions in my mind about the whole range of, of research from uh, basic science all the way to clinical practice that could be answered. That's a very helpful overview, and it leads me really to my last question. 
Care to comment for listeners on where your own research is currently headed in this area? I actually am involved in a randomized control trial right now with colleagues at the University of Utah. It's a group of neurologists and physical therapists, both at University of Utah and at University of Kansas Medical Center, who are working together on a fairly large randomized controlled trial funded by the NIH, looking at a multi-component lifestyle intervention that also includes diet, a component as well as balance, resistance, aerobic training, looking at daily physical activity. In our two primary outcome measures are looking at the nerve fiber density in the skin. And so, again, looking at that basic, the impact of, of exercise on the nerve fibers themselves, as well as a measure of quality of life. And I'll just put a plug in because the protocol for that study is being published in PTJ in January 2017, along with this prospectus article on the same issue. And so we're really excited about that. It will take us four or five years to complete the study and, and get the results of that study, but we're hoping that that it will provide strong evidence for, you know, the use of exercise and, and nutrition and lifestyle intervention to have an impact on, on these outcomes. So, yeah, that's what I'm working on right now. Well, that's great, Dr. Cluding. I, I really see a lot of exciting work being done in this area and um, look forward to, to seeing more of it and would invite you to publish in PTJ in the coming months and years ahead. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. I feel like we've had a really strong support from the PTJ, and it, is, it has been a little bit difficult because this work doesn't fit nicely into any of the, the specialty journals. So, you know, it's neuropathy, and so it, it, we have published a little bit in the neurology section journal. You know, we're looking at kind of middle to older adults, and so geriatric section journal, but there, we obviously don't have a diabetes section of the APTA. And so it's, it's really, I think, spans so many different parts of the body and so many different specialty areas that I think being able to publish in the physical therapy journal is really helpful for us to have the most impact and reach the most physical therapists. One additional comment is I've published in the Physical Therapy Journal on this topic previously, or our previous work, and it's been amazing, the response that I've gotten. I receive emails from people all over the world who've seen the abstract, for example, on, in last year in 2015 on safety with exercise in people with diabetic peripheral neuropathy, asking me about my work and asking me about what, what types of projects we're working on. So it's, it's great to get that level of response. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time today to talk with me, and I want to encourage listeners, if you haven't, to do take a look at the perspective, physical training and activity in people with diabetic peripheral neuropathy, a paradigm shift. I think you'll find it most interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you.